So with that, I'm going to, Pastor David said it was okay if I just continued in our series on John. So I'll be preaching from John chapter nine this morning. I'm going to pray over our word this morning and then we're going to dig right in. Father God, we thank you so much for this beautiful morning we get to spend together in your presence and also just getting to hear from your word. We believe that your word is perfect and it is true. It is good to the soul and it revives the soul. God, I thank you so much that your Bible is not just uh, a bunch of demands that make us feel horrible all the time. That is not the purpose of your word. The purpose of your word is to instruct, to show us where we need your divine grace so that we can live in the ways that you called us to, to be a witness to this world and a witness to the wisdom of those who live according to your word. So Lord, just open up our hearts, open up our ears to what John chapter nine, we believe that we just kind of get a sense of what you are speaking to us through it so that Jesus, we can leave feeling well-fed in our spirit. In your name we pray, amen. So we are continuing in our series on the Gospel of John, which is the fourth gospel in the New Testament, otherwise known as the Eagle Gospel. If you didn't know that, in the early church, they actually had a different name for each of the gospels to help for memory for earlier, uh, for kind of maybe new believers to the faith. And they always would refer to the fourth gospel or John's gospel as the Eagle Gospel. Because anyone who reads it in comparison to Matthew, Mark, and Luke will notice that it soars at really great heights revealing with perfect clarity that Jesus truly is God in the flesh. Anybody who says, well, I believe Jesus was just a man or just a prophet has probably only read as far as Matthew, Mark, and Luke because his divinity is less clear in those, not because they didn't believe that. They worshiped uh, Jesus as God when they wrote those scriptures. It was that they had different intent. By the time John came along, he wanted to make sure everybody in the church and outside the church was quite clear about Jesus' identity, which is that he was both man, but he was also fully God. And it is known as the Eagle Gospel because you cannot read this gospel without coming to the end of it and going either he is or he isn't, and I have to make a choice. It's known as the Eagle Gospel. This also explains why this gospel is split up into two sections, known as the Book of Signs, which are chapters one through 12, and the book of glory, which is chapters 13 through 21. The book of signs, which we are still in right now, is meant to demonstrate Jesus's divine power through miracles, miracles that we believe he is still doing today, amen? And the book of glory is meant to reveal his divine nature, which is everything leading up to his death and resurrection. As I said, we are in the book of signs, the first half, chapter nine. Specifically, the sign that Jesus is the light, the light of the world, which in the Gospel of John is the sixth sign. The Apostle Paul, John, I mean the Apostle Paul, sorry. The Apostle John explains that Jesus meant this in two senses, that he is the light of the world in two senses. One, Jesus is the light because he reveals the world for what it actually is, which is thrown into darkness right now. As John wrote earlier back in chapter three, God's light came into the world, but people hated the light because their actions were evil and they loved the darkness more than the light. All who do evil refuse to go near the light or even consider it for fear that their sins will be exposed. So in this sense, the first sense, Jesus is the light of the world, but he actually, when he comes or did come, and is still in many ways shining in our world today, he first reveals what the world is, which is thrown into darkness. And if we don't know him, our heart is in darkness. That is the first sense in which Jesus is the light of the world. 
Have you ever shined your light in an abandoned place like a garage? What happens? You turn on the flashlight and you go looking and usually one of the first things that you see is all the creepy crawlers scatter, don't they? This is exactly our world when Jesus Christ is proclaimed. When the gospel is declared clearly, boy, oh boy, do people's hearts truly become revealed and what's really going on underneath under the hood. So Jesus is the light of the world, but the first thing that it hits us as is it reveals our darkness and our need for his light. He reveals the darkness. However, two, praise God, the scriptures also say he is also the light that gives light to everyone who would receive. In other words, in this sense, Jesus is also the one who will change your heart if you will let him. He will literally take that starting place of darkness, which you must admit, and our world must admit, and then he does this beautiful thing, which he says, but I'm also the giver of light, if you will let me, and I'll change your darkness into light. Anybody here had that experience on the inside? Heck, yes, it's awesome. John, again, already alluded to this way back in John chapter one, the very first chapter. He said this, in the beginning was the word which already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. He gave life to everything and brought light to everyone. His light shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. He is the true light who gives light to everyone. He came into the very world he created but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own, but they rejected him. So the word became human and made his home among us, Jesus Christ. He is the true light who gives light to everyone who wants to see God for who he truly is, Jesus. So here's sense number two. Jesus is the light of the world. He doesn't just reveal hearts, he will also transform that heart from a despicable place of darkness to a wondrous place of light if we let him. That's why John said to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Amen? Don't you love that? Scriptures say that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but instead to save it through him. It feels like Jesus is a judge when all you're doing is letting him light up your darkness and you forget that by his grace, he'll change your darkness into light, which is the true gospel message. Now with that, keeping both these senses in mind, we can now come to chapter nine, where John deliberately plays in vivid detail on both of these senses. Because now we're gonna read about Jesus healing a blind man from birth. Contextually, this is perfect. In these scenes, Jesus is still ministering during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the three great festivals of Israel, and which was especially known, this is key, because if you were in living at that time, you would have known that. In our time, we don't, we don't have that same culture. We have different culture. At their time, they would have immediately captured what Jesus was talking about. He's talking about himself as light because Jesus is ministering during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was actually known for its light shows at night. There was an interplay of darkness and light 
lamps here and then darkness there. And there was a light show back and forth in the evenings that were deliberately meant to symbolize the very real and very present war between good and evil, truth and lies, and holding fast to the one true faith in the one true God of heaven and earth versus every other faith out there. The apostle John is deliberately highlighting Jesus's genius in calling himself the light of the world during such a time as this. All the Jews are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles with these awesome light shows that they're not known for. In fact, there's a rabbi around that time that said, if you have never experienced the joy of the Feast of Tabernacles and the light show, you have never truly experienced joy. That's how cool it was. And Jesus comes right into it and goes, hey, everybody, all the symbolism you know of, I'm the light. Oh, talk about immediate controversy. But they would have immediately understood the scandalous thing Jesus just said. I am the light that overcomes the darkness that Israel, you have been tutored on for the last hundreds and hundreds of years. I am the light you've been waiting for. And then right after John chapter eight, which Pastor David just taught on last week, is still the Feast, of Fest, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And what does Jesus now do? I am the light. And then he goes on to prove it by healing a what? A man born into darkness from birth. Heck yes. Isn't Jesus awesome? I love that it says, his light shines in the darkness and no darkness will ever overcome it. I believe that when Jesus goes to heal this blind man, from an angel's point of view, this was like a heavenly mic drop moment. With that, let's go ahead and read the passage, understanding the context. And we are going to read the whole thing. And if anybody goes, ah, you are welcome to leave. John chapter nine. As he went along, I'm reading from the NIV. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God may be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming and when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, no, it only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I'm the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. Say mud. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. 
Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. So they brought the man to the Pharisees. And now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the eyes was Sabbath. Of course it was. We love how much the Pharisees love Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him, how had, how had he received his sight? Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man said. Everybody say mud. mud. And I washed, they washed. And now I see, say see. Good job. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs then? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. Well, what do you say about him? It was your eyes that were open. And the man replied, well, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been born blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one that they say was born blind? How is it that he can see now? Well, we know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind, but how he can see or how his eyes were opened, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. <laughs> that is what me and my household call a bad daddy mommy moment. It says that John could tell that's what we're thinking because he goes on to explain. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. In other words, kicked not just out of church. We have lots of churches, but back then there was only one church of Israel. If you got kicked out of the church, it was equivalent to being damned. And they didn't want to be damned. And that was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And otherwise, let him deal with it. A second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God and tell us the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know is I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, wow, that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God... He could not do anything. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. Interesting. This man has just been kicked out of the church, the only church at that time known for salvation. And Jesus goes and finds that man. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I might believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, 
For judgment, I have come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim that you see, your guilt remains. Anybody who thinks the Bible is boring is not reading it. There's a lot in this, but we see the main element, which is Jesus is declaring that he's the light of the world and he's using this blind man to show that very clearly. We see people who believe and are in the journey of understanding who Jesus is. But then you also see the opposite effect, which is this very clear and undeniable demonstration of who Jesus is, and yet they are completely blind to the truth and will not admit the truth. To bring us back through this chapter, because it's so thick and so good, I am simply going to use seven words to kind of bring us back through. And if you don't mind, we're just gonna repeat them after me real fast, just kind of keep you on your toes, okay? There are gonna be these seven words, light, not yet, light, blind, mud, wash, see, scent, believe. Say it together, light, blind, Mud, wash, see, scent, believe. Okay, do the wave. Just kidding. Don't do it. <laughs> These are the seven words I'm going to bring us back through. And interestingly enough, this is one of the longest single accounts of Jesus with the person in the Gospel of John, which also tells us something that when John wrote it, he wanted this passage in a, in a really important way to kind of sum up Jesus' ministry. We actually find that in the symbolism itself, in these seven words. The first word is light, which is not technically in it, but that's because it's assumed into chapter nine, because in chapter eight, Jesus already said he literally is the light of the world. Read John chapter eight for yourself. He had already said that. John chapter nine assumes it. So as Jesus is going, and we see in John chapter nine with the blind man, Jesus has already declared, I'm the light of the world which means one, he reveals the darkness of the world and the darkness of our own hearts, but then even better, he shows us that he is the light which would light it up if we'll let him. Two is blind. Now we come to the blind man, which represents spiritual blindness for us all. And interestingly enough, the disciples highlight how this works. Because they see a blind man, and I'm sure the first thing Jesus thought was pity and mercy, I wanna heal this man. But the disciples kind of interject, and what's the first thing they ask? Who sinned? Dang it, who does that sound like? Not me, right? Who sinned? Which already showed their spiritual blindness about how the gospel works. They look at this poor blind man from birth, and Jesus is, and we know what Jesus is, his feeling about the whole thing was the gospel is here, the good news is here, the kingdom is gum, come, not gum, come. And he's gonna heal this blind man. And the disciples instead, they kind of interject for a second and they're like, we have a question. Who sinned that that man was born blind? Was it him or his parents? Oh boy, does that sound like us. And they're using the law. 
They're not just making stuff up. They're literally using God's word to try to interpret this situation. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 28, literally says this. This is from the scriptures. This is what the disciples were thinking as they're looking at this blind man. It says, the Lord will strike you with madness, blindness, and panic for those who sin against the Lord. So they see a blind man, and what is their thought? He sinned. But there's another option, which is any parent of a middle school teenager knows, this is, comes, comes your way pretty soon, is the middle of the, your parents screwed you up, right? It's your parents' fault. They screwed you up. Yes! I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> Exodus 25. Listen to this. It's, from, it's again from the Old Testament. They're looking at a blind man, and they're like, well, Deuteronomy 28, 28 says, well, he probably sinned, but there's a second option. Maybe his parents did it. Maybe his parents sinned and he, he, uh, he inherited their sin. Exodus 25, 20 verse five. He inflicts punishment for their ancestors' wickedness on the children of those who hate him. Now Jesus knows the law pretty well, kind of wrote it before he came incarnate. And they're like, which one is it, Jesus? And Jesus just goes, neither. My program is no longer about analyzing what's wrong with the world and, no, and doing nothing about it. He says, my program is about praying in such a way that God would miraculously move in the darkness and bring new light. This man was born blind, yes, in a real way because of sin through Adam's sickness and darkness, but Jesus is saying a superior program is here and it's called grace. And our movement as the body of Christ is now to bring God's grace to a dark situation in order for God to bring miraculous light. In the words of my wife, there are many times where she will, will find something is wrong. I don't know what it is, something, something that could be psychological, something like mechanical, it doesn't matter. And I will go into this, I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I'll just start ana anal analyzing it. Well, it could be this, it could be that. And then my wife literally will get annoyed with me and she'll just say this, that's not helpful. Have you ever had that moment? She does it. It's awesome because I don't even realize it's called analysis paralysis. It means you can analyze something to death. In fact, some Eastern religions are built on this with karma and past lives. Is what's wrong with you today? Well, it has to do with your past lives. So you go pay a guru to look into all of your past lives so that then you can go, great, how do I clean it up today? All that is is analysis paralysis. Because at the end of the day, it's not helpful. What I want to know is how I can be changed in the present and into the future. Amen? Amen. So when we go, hey, I know what's wrong with the world, blah, 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 and you didn't pray once, you are a part of the problem. <laughs> because Jesus was pretty clear. Is there, is there maybe something off with our times today. Could you pick any area of our society, education, government, therapy, psychology, pick one. Yes, they are getting more and more flooded with darkness and confusion, but we are supposed to be the body of Christ, the light, his light in the world. And if we're not learning how to partner this stuff with prayer, we're literally falling into the spiritual blindness that these disciples just did. Who sinned, let them rot. And then Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 that's not what my program is about anymore. It is not eye for an eye, tit for tat. It is, it does not matter how undeserving they are. 
God's grace wants to break into that person or into that situation and bring light. And I don't know about you, I'm so thankful that that's how Jesus works in my heart. Because he could have let me rot. I so deserve it. And I'm thankful for his grace and his mercy, which gives me light. Blind. Light. Blind. And interestingly enough, how much blindness uses the law instead of releasing grace. Now everyone say mud. mud. Anybody's read John chapter nine? This is where you get funny, right? Anybody's read this chapter? Because Jesus does a weird thing. He moves on, he's like, look, the kingdom of God is being sent. The new operating principle is grace, not judgment, it's grace. And then he goes over there, and then what's he do? Spits in the dirt, makes some mud, sticks it on the poor guy's eyes, and then tells him to go wash. Like, real, what? So first, that's disgusting. And I've read a commentary that's like, back then, this was kind of coming. It was not common. We have no writings from that time of anybody ever putting mud on somebody's eyes like that, except for one time, which I'm going to share because I think it's significant. And then the poor guy's blind. He puts the mud and then says, go wash. He's still blind. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> Could you imagine if any of us did this? I think that Jesus was trying to cue us in on something and John, with the help of the Holy Spirit, saw it. You see, this word in the Greek of mud or clay has extremely strong symbolism in the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. Because do you remember when the word first comes about? It is in Genesis chapter two, when God creates humanity from what? Clay. And what did sin, our disobedience from God, drive us into? Darkness. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing when he took the mud and the clay as the creator. And he said, what you screwed up and brought darkness to your heart, I am recreating through my son so that you again might see. You see, Jesus was saying, what, you, what, 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 what man screwed up in creation, I, the new Adam, have now come. And I am making it right by God's grace. He is recreating us. The, the book of Genesis, Genesis means birth. God created us originally to live forever with him in happiness and joy and in peace. But when we disobeyed him as a race, we are the ones that now brought in aging and death and sickness. We did that. But God did not want to leave us in this predicament. So he sent his son Jesus in the flesh as the new Adam to pay the price and bring in a whole new principle, which Paul calls the new humanity. And anybody who says yes to the new Adam gets to be ingrafted into the new humanity, which will outlast this creation and gets to go on forever. Amen? Jesus has taken everything we screwed up and he said, look, everybody, I fixed it. 
So in the meantime, keep doing my works and hold on for dear life until I come back. What does the mud symbolize? Genesis, birth, aging, death. But then Jesus takes it and he puts new mud, which means regenesis, new birth, youth forever. This is why Jesus is our hope. Literally, he is our hope because there's a scripture that says what he already is, we shall be on that day when he appears. Mud is talking about this new birth in Jesus Christ, this new humanity that he has brought. And it's starting now, but we're gonna see it in the full when he returns. So why does he tell him to go wash? Jesus is the light. He reveals the blindness. He heals us through his new humanity, his new Adamness. And then he tells him to go wash. What's, for those that have been raised in church, after you give your life to Jesus Christ, and you say, yes, I want to be a part of this new program of God. I want, to, I want to live forever with him. What are you supposed to go do right after you say yes to Jesus or as soon as possible? What do you do? Say it loud. There it is. I told you it's full of symbolism. Because Jesus takes this regenesis mud, puts it on the guy's eyes and goes, this is going to heal you. And then he tells him to do something weird, but totally makes sense in the symbolism is now go what? Wash. It's unfortunate that in the modern church today, baptism is held so lightly because in the early church, it was truly seen as the second birthday and people coveted it, that their, their day of baptism very strongly in a spiritual way. Unfortunately, now, today, you almost never hear much on baptism unless you're getting baptized, and then people get baptized, and honestly, a lot of the time, they're kind of demystified by their baptism experience, because they thought it was going to be super spiritual, and then they're done with it, and it's like, okay, I did it, but I don't really know what it means. And yet, we see John telling us there's something very powerful about water baptism and the symbolism it means, which was the original idea, which hopefully you heard when you got water baptized, is that you gave your life to Jesus, which means you have died to yourself and said yes to him. And the waters of baptism are meant to symbolize that, that you are going down into the water and you are dying. And the only reason you're coming back up is because now you are living for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Who here, and this is not like, it's okay if you didn't, who here has been baptized? All right, what you have basically said is, right now, Chris, I'm living for Jesus, not myself. Is that true? Now go wash. Baptism, I believe, is a powerful, powerful symbol that we must keep in our remembrance that every day I live, I died to myself and my old nature, and I said yes to Jesus Christ who gives me the mud to stay spiritually alive. And then, see, the man washes, and then after he washes, he can see, which I see as discipleship. What's really interesting about John chapter 9, if you notice, is notice the man after he washes, after he says yes to Jesus, his understanding of Jesus grows along the way. Isn't that interesting? If you caught it, what's the first thing when the man is questioned, who is that man? He calls Jesus what? 
a man. Some man did it. And then he goes to the Pharisees second round and now he changed, he's not just a man, now he's a prophet. Wow, you guys are really listening. I'm super proud of you. It's interesting, even the man's progression, he can see now and in his sight, his understanding of Jesus is getting deeper and deeper and more intimate. He's, just, he's a man, no, he's a prophet and then Jesus comes along and now he proclaims he's the Messiah and he worships him. You see, that's what it's supposed to be like after our baptism, is we don't just go, I've got everything, I was baptized, check mark, done. No, because if you are now in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you'd be spending your whole life getting to know him better and better, so you might love him better and better. Amen? That's discipleship. Discipleship is going, Jesus, I want to know you, that I might love you. And in my deeper love for you, I want to know you. And I never want to stop. Once Jesus opens our eyes and we see who he truly is, then we must now begin the path of discipleship, of growing in our own knowledge and our own love for him. If your love for Jesus has not grown since you were baptized, my friend, you're missing out. Your, your love for God should be growing every day. And then lastly, before we get to believe, which is the response. Jesus is what? Light. He reveals our what? We're blind. He comes and give us new birth, which is symbolized by mud. Then he says, go wash, which is get baptized. And then now that you are baptized, start the discipleship journey of getting to know Jesus on a more and more intimate level. But then notice, he tells him not to just go wash at some random fountain. He tells them to go wash at the pool of Siloam, which John tells us means what? Sent. Again, you guys are really listening. Mm, I love it. And again, it's not for no reason. Because anybody who truly follows Jesus knows that if it's no longer about you and he saved your behind, you can't keep that to yourself, can you? You gotta go share so we can save other people's behinds. Right? Amen? And that is exactly what we see in the rest of it. All in that short passage, the guy gets healed. And then he washes in the pool of scent. And then he immediately is thrown into what? Opposition of various kinds. Isn't he? Isn't it powerful? It's like right all there. You're like, I've been baptized. Then you don't live for yourself. And if you don't live for yourself, then you are sent. And if you are sent into a dark world and you are the light, guess what you're gonna face? opposition and there's four kinds. Are you ready? We see four kinds of opposition. The first kind, we're going to go kind of in terms of the hardest and it kind of flows that way with the, with the, the narrative. The first one are the curious neighbors. Anybody have curious neighbors in the neighborhood? You know what I'm talking about? You probably, some of you are like, I'm the curious neighbor. So he gets healed. He's walking around. He's like, look, I can see. And they're all like, they're all like looking out their doors. They're like, oh my God, is that him? Is that the guy? No, it can't be the guy. It's totally the guy. It can't be. And you notice like the curious neighbor never does it. What? Actually go and like find out. You know what I'm saying? There's like, I think so. I don't know what I'm about, but we're not. So what is the curious neighbor on the ground? Who are the curious neighbors around you as you are the light of the world? You are living for Jesus the best that you can. These are the people who are non-committal but interested. <laughs> Yeah, well, go ahead and tell me about your church and Jesus. Oh, yeah, that's nice for you. I'm not sure if I want that yet. Okay. 
you are gonna have a lot of people around you who are the curious neighbors. They want to know how you're different. They see something different about you. They're just not ready to commit yet, okay? You need to learn to honor that. Don't go in for like, you know, the killer instinct. Yeah, I'm curious. And it's like, you have to make a decision right now or you're going to hell. Because then that person's going to go, I'm no longer interested. <laughs> the first kind of opposition is just the curious neighbor. You are going to have plenty of people around you. They're just in the place where they're going, I'm curious, I'm open, I'm just not ready to commit. And those people, you just continue to be you around them and let the Holy Spirit continue to plant those seeds along the way. Do not become, you know, the Jesus shark, Okay. Just because you smell blood doesn't mean you take them out. <laughs> if you want examples of this, there are plenty of times that Jesus was around curious people and he let the Holy Spirit water those seeds along the way. He did not go in for the kill. The second one is divided authorities. They bring the blind man to the authorities, the intimidating people the people who know. These are the people who have what I would say they're cocky. They're arrogant. Well, I've studied it all, and I know that Jesus is just a man. He wasn't even a perfect man. And then the blind man's like, hey, dummy, I can see. You gotta figure out what to do with that. My life has changed. If you knew me 15 years ago to where I am today, you would be like, what happened to you? I've had people who, who knew me back then who have met me and I didn't know them in between and they literally have said that, what happened to you? But you will meet those people who are like, well, I know, I read the latest book, I did this, I did that. You know, I know that God doesn't exist. I know, you're just ignorant. I am not I may not know everything, I may have not read the books, but I can tell you my heart has been changed. And that's enough for me. Now, if I know scripture in a way to help them, if I have read some books that help to maybe dismantle some of their arguments to maybe open their mind for a chance to, to actually hear who Jesus is, then I'm gonna use all that. But at the end of the day, my fundamental truth is this, Jesus changed my heart and I don't really care what anybody else thinks about it. Amen? Amen? And that's how I'm gonna live. And if they're willing to hear my testimony, then I'm gonna trust the Holy Spirit to be a greater authority than the authority they think they are. And I've seen that too. I had a professor, what time is it? Sometimes I get going, I don't even pay attention. Aw, we're at 11.05. No, I don't. I love you. <laughs> Divided authorities. Look, here's the deal. Some point, you are gonna meet somebody who knows more than you, and you have to just admit it to yourself. Ding it. They have better arguments than I can bring up right now. They know the scriptures annoyingly better than I do because I'm just in the new believers class right now. They know more than me. Do not lose sight that Jesus changed your heart and that is enough for you and you let the Holy Spirit take care of the rest. You do not get intimidated by people who know more than you. Now, if you feel a check, you want to know more, that's fine but don't you ever lose sight of Jesus's power in your own life because that is legitimate. 
And there may come a time where somebody who knows more than you is gonna hear your testimony and then it's gonna change them. I had a professor, uh, when I was at Sac State, he was my cultural psychology professor, and little did I know, every little way I'd stand up for the Christian faith in my classroom against my peers, and I was never, I was never mean, I was never argumentative, I just asked simple questions that I believe Jesus brings to the table. And so when, the, and, and he was listening, he was listening, he was listening, and little did I know, he was actually listening to what I had to say about my testimony about Jesus all the way through, that at the end of the class, he asked if he could take me out to lunch. And he said, because of my simple testimonies in that classroom, he had begun to want to follow Jesus again and wanted to start going back to church. And I will tell, it's beautiful. I had no idea. He was so much smarter than me, but he is not smarter than the Lord. So when I give my testimony, I'm not relying on my wit. I'm relying on the Holy Spirit who also created them and is going to activate the longing in their heart for their creator through Jesus Christ too. Next one is closed-minded Jews. The closed-minded Jews. These are anybody that you're going to meet who are just straight up stubborn. Say stubborn. Stubborn. Oh yeah, who here has met the stubborn person? Right? They're not just arrogant. There's like, no, it's always wrong. Jesus can't be that. This is this. You like try to give them all of these reasons. And they're like, nah, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And you just want to like kick them in the shin. <laughs> don't, but you want to. Yes, some of the opposition you're going to meet is not just the arrogant person. Sometimes the authority is actually more open than you think. But you're going to meet people who honestly are just straight up stubborn. And honestly, a lot of times you just got to let that go. You gotta stop trying, leave them to the Lord because what I have found is the super stubborn person ends up having to go through a whole heap of pain and then their heart gets softened and then they realize they need a savior. It's usually how it works. And those laughing are like, dang it, I was the stubborn person. That's how it happened for me. I'm not worried about it. In fact, I did tell somebody one time, they're so stubborn. And I got, actually got angry. They got the best of me. And I was like, you know what? And they're like, what? I'm like, God is just going to open you up to a heap of pain and then you're going to remember me and call me to pray for you. (laughs) It's true, but I shouldn't have said it like that. They probably called some other Christian. (laughs) Okay, listen, listen, this is the last one. I really want you to listen to this one. I felt like the Holy Spirit is going to speak to a lot of people in the fourth category, okay? And we're going to wrap up. This one's so important. Some of you have already been affected by the last category. Some of you, you will. It's gonna be such a test of your faith. You got the curious neighbors. You got the divided authorities. You got the straight up closed-minded ones who can't see the obvious and don't want to. There's the fourth category, hardest of all, the parents. And I don't mean it just in the sense of everyone in here that is a parent. I mean in the sense of when we come to Christ at some point, whether you were born in a Christian home, a good Christian home, or later, we all at some point latch onto a role model. And that is good. That is part of discipleship. But my goodness, can you imagine the blind man, how much he probably looked up to his parents' faith. And then when the moment of testing came, they gave in. They went yellow-bellied. This is what I call the fourth and probably hardest kind of opposition. 
is the yellow-bellied parents in the passage. I don't know where yellow-bellied originally came from, but one explanation that made sense to me is kind of like a lizard, where on the outside, it's like, you know, they look mean and menacing and strong and, you know, ready and this and this, but then in the actual moment of real testing, they scatter. My friends, there might be some in this room that you looked up to somebody and when the time of testing came, they buckled. And that is one of the hardest times to continue to stand your own for Jesus Christ because you feel the strength you derive from the role model, whether a parent, a grandparent, could be anybody. And then you didn't see it coming and they buckle and you literally feel yourself on the inside want to buckle with them, but I am confident that the Holy Spirit in you will call you to stand strong even if all of your role models around you are buckling, and he will call you to stand alone and to become a role model to the next generation. Are you hearing me? There are too many in this room that you have a big mouth, and I don't mean that in a bad way, meaning you declare Jesus, but my fear is that when a time of testing comes, you haven't actually tested your own heart. Would you stand? Will you stand? And I think that is a question worth asking every single one of ourselves in this room, because my friends, a time is still coming where we're all gonna be tested, and I not only want to know how to stand in my declaration of Jesus, even if my role models no longer are, I also want to be able to pass the test so that my children don't ever have to experience me buckling. Amen? Amen. But can I also give this word of hope? Even if we all buckle, do you know who never will? Jesus Christ. And as long as he is sitting on his throne, he will continue to raise people up. Amen? Peter buckled three times. And what did Jesus still do? He reinstated him. So if you do buckle in this room or have buckled in this room, please do not go the way of Judas. Please don't lose hope and despair. Be Peter, admit you buckled, and just go, Jesus, I'm sorry and let him reinstate you today and keep on going, amen? amen? Worship team, you can come up. Jesus is the light of the world, amen? The last word is simply believe, which is the response. Believe. From what you have heard today, whichever section of this narrative that I just tried to unpack the best I could, which part of it was Holy Spirit speaking to you about? That he is literally calling you this morning to believe, to respond. Are you the blind man or blind woman? That you came in this morning or maybe you're watching online and before this service, you had all of these ideas about Jesus that you're now realizing, wow, I was wrong 
He really is God. He really is the savior of the world. He really is my personal savior who died on the cross for my screwed up heart, my darkness, so that he might bring light. If that's you, if you are the blind one, I encourage you while the light is still shining, say yes to Jesus Christ, because if you let this moment pass, I do not know when it will come again. I just know that the grace of God works this way, that when we declare Jesus, Jesus opens blind eyes to see himself for who he is. And then it's our job to say yes to him and receive him and believe, and then let him begin to change your heart. So if you are the blind man or the blind woman, and Jesus right now through the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to say yes to him, to give your life over to him, please say yes. Surrender your life to him and let the Holy Spirit invade your being so you can come alive to him. Maybe you're the person that needs Jesus's mud. Maybe you're the person that needs Jesus to come and strengthen you again as his servant. Some of you maybe have fallen away and maybe somewhere along the way you gave up on your relationship with God and you literally just fell away from him. And what you need is for him to reapply his salvation to your heart, reapply his salvation to your soul so you can again become one of his chosen ones. Or maybe you haven't been washed. Maybe you haven't been baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit like the scriptures say. Maybe you haven't yet publicly renounced Satan in all previous engagements with him and instead throw your lot in with the Son of God and his resurrection and supernatural victory. If you have not been water baptized yet, then I encourage you, get baptized. Follow the Lord's example. Or maybe some of you, you're feeling the call to discipleship that you can see what you're seeing is still, it's just not very strong. It's still very blurry. And so maybe the Holy Spirit's calling you to begin that path of discipleship, to get back into learning and our classes and the word of God so that you too, like this man, can continue to grow in your knowledge of Christ and your love for him too. Or lastly, maybe you're being sent. Maybe you're being called by Christ to shine in the darkness wherever you are. Whether that person or those people are curious, aggressive, or maybe even fallen saints that you weren't expecting. And you just sense that the Holy Spirit is calling you today to shine, no matter where you are, shine the light of Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. And we're gonna end with one song of worship. Let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. Father, we believe your son Jesus is the light of the world and that he is revealing the truth, the world for what it is. Lost in a state of spiritual darkness. But we also believe, thank you, Father, that he is also the light that gives light to all who believe, whose hearts want to change for him. So come, Lord Jesus, and show us where we are on our path for you whether we are blind or whether we need mud or we need to wash or to see or be sent, show us where we are on a path for you. And Holy Spirit today, show us what that means and what you would have us do.
We're just gonna spend some time in the Lord's presence. The altars are always open too if you feel like you wanna come up. Otherwise, let's just keep our hearts open to the Holy Spirit. at the very beginning of the message that the second sense in which Jesus is the light of the world really just brought fresh hope to those who are struggling with darkness in their hearts. That there are people in this room that you love Jesus, but there is a darkness in your heart that terrifies you. And it was that second sense in which Jesus is the one who brings light, he gives light. I wanna pray for you this morning and then we'll close. Jesus, I thank you that you are the light of the world and that your word literally says that you are the one who gives light and the darkness has not overcome it. I pray for those this morning who they are feeling the weight of that darkness, that they are feeling enslaved by that darkness, that they are feeling hopeless in and under that darkness, that we come against it right now in the name of Jesus. 
And we pray, Holy Spirit, you begin to pour out light into that place and you overcome that darkness. Even now. And I pray where there were dark clouds, there would now be rays of light. And I pray they would now just simply follow you this week, getting into your word, fellowshipping with other believers, so that that light would grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Lord, I pray a blessing over everybody who's here. Keep them healthy and safe this week. Pray over families, just good times together. Pray over marriages, that you just strengthen them. And Lord, I just pray that when we come back next week, and God, we just so excited. And Lord, I pray this week would be your light. We shine your light no matter the opposition. Lord, we want you to shine as you have shined in us. Thank you, Jesus. And be with Pastor and Lisa and Brooke as well. We love them so much. We miss them. I just pray that you be with them too. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning, everybody. Have a good week. If you are new, I'd love to meet you and greet you out in the foyer.